All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? Oh, we're doing pretty well, Chris. I think uh, spring's around the corner, so that's got to be a good thing, right? Probably get one more, one last snow in, but after that, I think it'll be some uh, warmer weather. Yeah, I feel like we kind of make that same comment. You know, we've done this for a couple of years now, and yeah, it's warming up, you know, getting into the 60s over here in Colorado and melting off some of this uh, winter snow, I guess. It's been a long, cold, snowy winter, so yeah, looking forward to getting some warmer weather. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, on this episode, we are going to discuss a recent Federal Mine Safety and Health Review Commission decision. Arthur will get to that in a little bit. It's called American Soda, and it's addressing immediate notification requirements. We thought this would be a timely issue to discuss. You know, we get a lot of questions from operators, you know, typically not about immediate reporting because that 15-minute window is quite short. Um, and we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk a little bit about some of these developments in this case, you know, what the requirements of the cited regulation is, and the legal arguments considered in this particular decision, and, and frankly, what operators should consider if they're ever faced with a decision to immediately report. And specifically today, we're going to talk about this immediate reporting of an injury to a miter with a a quote-unquote reasonable potential to cause death. Now, Arthur, this reporting requirement can be tricky. Can you set the stage for what we're discussing today? Yeah, Chris, you know, and I got to say, I'm going to give a little commentary before I get to the actual information. You know, I really hate this regulation. I think this is a terrible regulation, and I'm sure... Our operator friends out there agree with me. And I got to say that in the last administration where there was something of a mandate for regulatory reform, this was my number one pick to be reformed. And I said it to anyone that would listen at conferences and within trade associations and so forth that if we're really talking about regulatory reform, and it's not easy under the Mine Act, that's a whole other topic, but but this is the one that we needed to reform. I guess that's above my pay grade because, you know, we it's still here. But maybe if there's an opportunity in the future for regulatory reform, this will once again be my first pick to be reformed. But that being said, it was not reformed. It is the law. We have to follow it, and our job is to help our clients navigate that landscape. So with that bit of consternation now passed, why is this so important? Well, it's important because 30 CFR Part 50 requires, among other things, that if one of 12 specifically enumerated accidents occurs, that the operator must immediately report it to MSHA, and that must happen within 15 minutes of knowing about it, right? So some of them are fairly black and white. 
The worst, obviously, is a fatality. If a fatality happens, a death and a mine site, I think you know that, and you got to make the 15-minute call. That's not hard to determine when that occurs. The mine fires, underground, not put out within 10 minutes of discovery on the surface, not put out within 30 minutes of discovery. There's some quantification there. I think you know it hasn't been put out within those time frames. Then you make the call to Amtrak. But then we have this fuzzy, non-specific item number two, which is a an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. And you need to make a determination. If that occurs, you must make the call to MSHA. And I, and I will note the 1-800 number to MSHA, not calling the district, not texting your buddy who might be an inspector, not even telling an inspector who's on site for other purposes. I've had that one happen before. Yes company did that instead of calling they still got cited got to be that 800 number you got to do that within 15 minutes and the other thing is you then have to freeze the scene that's 50.12 so if you've made that call then you've got to freeze the scene until MSHA either shows up or gives you further direction so it's a pretty significant requirement OSHA doesn't have anything like it uh in the OSHA world we're not looking at an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. We're looking at a formal hospital admission. So that's pretty clear cut. Either it happened or it didn't. Uh, the other thing in the OSHA world, you get 24 hours from that. In MSHA, 15 minutes. So anyway, with that being said, let's talk about that injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. I'm sure my med school friends would say, what the heck is that? That's not, doesn't sound like a medical term to me. <laughs> That's what the law gives us. So Chris, what does that mean in the MSHA world? Um, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> so I'm sure it would come to no surprise to our listeners to learn that an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death is not defined. We have no definition in the regs or even, frankly, case law, right, where all these judges have decided these types of cases. What is an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death? The best we've come up with is the Review Commission and the Court of Appeals have held that the standard to measure an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death is whether a reasonable person in the circumstances would view the injuries as having a reasonable potential to cause death. <laughs> and they, they go on to explain that the totality of the circumstances must be considered. And you focus on the information available at the time of injury. That's a key, that's a key point we'll, we'll get to in, in a second here. And that reasonable doubts should be resolved in favor of reporting. We'll get to that in a second as well. And so when we talk a little bit about totality of the circumstances, we're talking about the nature of the accident itself, and then obviously the nature of the injuries to the minor. And so again, this is a case where a minor has not died, right, has not lost his life or her life, but have, have received 
some type of injury, right? And then we're trying to figure out whether that injury has a reasonable potential to cause death. And so that's really what we're going to discuss today in terms of this review commission decision. And so when you think about the nature of the accident, right? So let's say, for example, we have two light-duty surface vehicles collide with one another, and a miner who's wearing his seatbelt still, you know, sustains some type of injury, broken arm, maybe, right? Is that an injury with a reasonable potential to cause damage? Well, so we look at the totality of the circumstances. You know, how fast were these trucks going? What was the nature of the injuries? Okay, we have a broken arm. Was that miter, you know, did he receive any other types of injuries? Did he lose consciousness? You know, those types of, of questions are asked and evaluated. Um, I can tell you, right, from the case law, that the judges rely on witness testimony. So firsthand testimony of, you know, first responders, you know, EMTs, for example, um, you know, who's first on scene, what did they observe, what did the minor him or herself actually observe and experience, right? And so those are all important factors. But as we as we get into the case discussion, it appears that there's a greater emphasis now placed on not just what the operator knew at the time, but perhaps more of an emphasis on what should they have known or what didn't they know, right? Because it's that last factor we mentioned, reasonable doubts resolved in favor of reporting. So if there are questions we don't know the answer to, and if that creates reasonable doubts in terms of the nature of the injury or, uh, you know, what exactly happened with the accident, right? I think operators need to understand there is this favor of reporting issue out there. And I suppose, right, it's, it's intended to say, you know, operators cannot remain intentionally uninformed that you do have to do, you know, albeit a 15 minute, you know, quick investigation, but based on the facts that you learn at that time, right, you make this, you make this decision whether to report or not. What are your thoughts on that? Or did I, did I miss anything important in that? Yeah, no, I think you hit all the bullet points. Um, the, and we're going to talk in a second about how this has played out in the recent uh, decision from earlier this month, February 2nd, the commission issued. The challenge, of course, is that these determinations have to be made within 15 minutes. And when an operator then gets cited for it, what MSHA's doing is evaluating that decision-making process, the reasonableness of that decision-making process. That's the essence of Monday morning quarterbacking, isn't it? I mean, I've never personally been in the position of having to make a determination within 15 minutes of whether somebody has a reasonable potential to cause death or not. And I don't envy those that do, but the law does require that somebody, and it pretty much comes down to a person at the site, is going to have to make that decision. Based on the facts I have, does this have a reasonable potential to cause death or not? And that's a tall order. 
That's a really tall order. And without further guidance, that's a challenge. You know, and, and then the other thing that I would say poses a challenge is this erring on the side of reporting. And I know that that came up in a Third Circuit decision, a recent Third Circuit decision. And now, as we'll talk about in American Soda, at least two of the commissioners seem to really catch on to that. And I have a fear that both MSHA and some judges and some commissioners are going to really catch on to that. And does that expand the scope of an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death into an an injury that potentially has a reasonable potential to cause death? Is that where we're going? You know, I draw a little bit of a baseball analogy here. I mean, the weather's warming up, right? Spring training's going up. You hear sometimes those of you who watch baseball, they say, well, are they, are they calling a high strike? Well, there's no high strike in baseball. That means nothing. It's either a strike or it's a ball. But that seems to be what we have going on here now with this, well, err on the side of reporting. Well, it may be an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death, but it may not. So we think you're required to report. No, that's not what the regulation says. It says you re- immediately report an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. Either it is or it isn't. And that's the determination that, that an operator has to make. And this now we're sort of pushing the lines on that. So I don't know. But anyway, let's get into the recent case, Chris, American Soda. Why don't you tell us, it was issued by the commission on February 2nd of this year. Why don't you give us some background and, and, and the facts of the case, and then we'll get into what happened. Yeah, for sure. So this review commission decision resulted from a petition for discretionary review, an administrative law judge opinion from November of 2021. And at the time, it was the operator was not called American Soda. It was called Solvay Chemicals. And Solvay Chemicals was, and I think still is, right? An underground metal, non-metal mine. The facts of what happened at the accident was essentially that a miner was, you know, mining out some ground. There was an issue with his equipment, so he backs his equipment out. And he's at the front of his equipment, you know, looking into the issue. And there was a fall of roof. And so this miter was struck by a rock that knocked him forcefully to the ground. And when he was initially knocked to the ground, his hard hat came off. And when he was on the ground, it looks like a second smaller rock impacted the back of his head. At that point, the miter was able to get up, um, brushes himself off. You know, obviously the mind responds. Um, they see this individual, he's walking, he, he's talking. You know, obviously he's been knocked around, so he's dirty. He's got some cuts, um, you know, that the cut on the back of his head where he was impacted with the, the second rock was bleeding. He also showed signs of impact on his face where he had, been initially struck and, and hit the, the mine floor. So he looked rough, looked rough and ready, like he had obviously been, you know, struck by a rock. But he was, like I said, he was apparently, according to the to the opinion, he was walking, 
and talking and responsive. First aid responds. You know, they're they're checking him out. They say, let's put you on a backboard. The miner says, no, I don't need a backboard. But, you know, obviously they need to get him cleaned up. They take him to the hospital to get checked out. You know, all this time he goes up to the surface. They drive him in, in, in a mail trip. He's talking. He's communicating. The mine manager uh, checks him out. You know, he's talking with him. Are you okay? And he's, the, he's yes, he's responsive. Again, refuses the backboard. He puts an ice pack on his face. The safety manager's informed that there's there's been this incident. Safety manager talks to the mine manager saying, hey, you know, what's the status? He's told, you know, he's responsive. He's talking. He's He's communicating. He seems lucid. And at that point, right, they do not believe that there was an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death, right? So they do not immediately report. The next day, and this is interesting, right, always an interesting aspect of, of these types of cases, MSHA gets a miter's complaint. MSHA comes out and in, investigates and decides that yes, you know, there was an accident here. And due to the nature of the accident and the injury, that the mine should have immediately reported. And so obviously, right, the mine contests that, saying, no, based on all this evidence on our, you know, in our 15 minute window that we observed, he did not look, this particular miner did not look like he was, you know, he had a reasonable potential to, to die. And so obviously, right, at, at a hearing, the judge finds that, in fact, that the operator should have reported. And again, right, we're, we're talking about a 15-minute window here. And the judge talks about basically that amount of time and that the operator having to make this decision based on what they knew and what they didn't know. And so the secretary's arguing Basically, the operator didn't adequately investigate the particular accident, made a cursory decision not to report the incident to MSHA, even though the totality of the circumstances and evidence available at the time of injury would have or should have put the operator on notice that they should report. And again, the issue of resolving unknowns, right, reasonable doubts that Basically, they should err in favor of reporting. And obviously, the operator's arguing no, right? Based on the condition of the minor, you know, he was lucid, he was talking, and he had not suffered an injury that required immediate notification. And so that was pretty much the issue that the judge was faced with. And I think it's important to kind of think about this in the context of you know, the case law, the reasonably prudent person standard, and then resolving reasonable doubt in favor of notification, right? So that's that's the stage that the judge is, is deciding this case in. And essentially, if, if we want to boil this down to nuts and bolts, you know, the judge said, you know, he's not finding a violation based on what the operator knew. So the judge stopped short of saying all head injuries are per se immediately reportable, right, as an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death, but basically relied on, you know, these these unknowns, right, known unknowns. And so basically in this case, 
what the judge focused on was that the operator did not know the size of the rock that fell on this particular miner. And so if they knew if the operator had known that, they would have been able to make more of the, I suppose, an educated decision, right, in terms of triggering this immediate reporting requirement, which I find is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, judge says, okay, all head injuries are not per se immediately reportable. However, you know, he goes on to talk about um, the significance of, of head trauma. And that's, that's something that, you know, he found persuasive is, is basically when you're dealing with blows to the head, you want to be able to quantify, you know, how significant was that blow to the head? Because basically effects of that injury may not be immediately apparent. And so basically, the mind should have known, right, that a significant blow to the head could reasonably be expected to be fatal, even if the miner was not displaying symptoms, right, of, of a reasonable potential to cause death. So that was it, right? The judge did say, you know, he thought that the, the mine did make some efforts to investigate. And so he lowered the, the negligence of the citation from from high to, to moderate. Uh, it remained SNS. I think it was interesting, at least in the SNS analysis, that they talk about the protective purposes of the Mine Act and, you know, what is the purpose of immediate reporting? It's to get MSHA out there to evaluate any potential hazards and investigate the accident to make sure it doesn't reoccur or we're not exposing miners to that same type of condition, which I think is a is a concept that carries over to the review commission decision. And then the judge upholds the, the civil penalty, which was, which was assessed at the statutory amount. And then obviously that decision was appealed to the review commission. And that's where we get the American soda case. So the, the operator had been renamed American soda and Arthur, what did the commission find? Well, the commission as a whole found nothing. Because <laughs> yes, there are currently four commissioners and they issued a two to two decision. And the legal effect of a two to two decision, it's like when you, I'm going to do another sports analogy. It's like when you're watching the football game and the, the, the plays under review, but there's no, not enough evidence to overturn the call. So the ruling on the field stands it's not confirmed and it's not reversed. It just stands. So the decision of the ALJ stands, but but there's no precedential value to his decision or to any of the decisions of the commissioners. There is what lawyers call persuasive value. It's not binding, but it can be persuasive. So there's four commissioners and and. They split two to two on whether the judge should be affirmed or reversed. Um, there's 25 pages of legal text to come to this non-decision. So we have a, a, an opinion of the two commissioners voting to affirm, Chair Jordan and Commissioner Baker. And then we have uh, a separate opinion by Commissioner Althan, who would vote to reverse. And then another separate opinion by Commissioner Rakovich, would also vote to reverse. So let's look at those because these separate opinions, in my mind, 
highlight the confusion that exists over this entire standard. Chair Jordan and Commissioner Baker would vote to affirm the judge that there was an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. And they focused largely on the surrounding circumstances. The fact that there was a, by all accounts, was a large rock, although I don't think we know exactly how large, but was a large rock that struck this miner. Uh, he did sustain some level of injury. He was, you know, required to be uh, removed from the mine, taken to the hospital for additional observations. But they they largely focus on these circumstances surrounding the rock fall itself. Uh, he was knocked down. His hard hat was knocked off, and and that type of thing. They focus less on the nature of the injury itself than do the other two commissioners, which we'll get to. They also focus, put a lot of attention, as I mentioned earlier, on this notion that that you should err on the side of calling Amsha. Um, if you don't know uh, the totality of of the miners' injuries, and that follows in line with what you described, Chris, as, as a lot of the judges' reasoning, that, that they just didn't know exactly what was going on. Commissioner Alton and Commissioner Rakovich would vote to reverse the judge, and they do so for similar reasons, but but there's, there is a little bit of a distinction between their opinions. There's no conflict between their opinions. There's a little bit of a distinction. Commissioner Alton really focuses in on this, what did the miners who were present at the scene know in those 15 minutes? What did they know about this miner's injuries? Well, what they knew was that he didn't lose consciousness. He got up, he was coherent, clear, expressed his his wishes for how to proceed. He didn't want to get on the backboard. You know, there was no change in pulse. There was no damage to, to any limbs or that type of thing. He did have a cut, but that cut was described by Commissioner Alton as, as superficial. And Commissioner Alton noted that the legal standard, as we've discussed, is what a reasonable person in the circumstances would would determine. And he said, well, these five or so employees that, that, that were witnesses testified as to their perception of what happened and that their opinion was reasonable, that there was nothing unreasonable about what they observed which led the mind to think there was no injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. The other thing I thought was noteworthy about Commissioner Alton's opinion is we have this whole bit of a tension between the injury itself and then the surrounding circumstances. And as I mentioned, Chair Jordan, Commissioner Baker, focused very significantly on the surrounding circumstances, the size of the rock and, uh, and how it fell and that type of thing. Commissioner Alton comes right out and says that Although we do have to consider the surrounding circumstances, there's abundant case law for that. But that the the nature of the the injury, the nature of the injury, is primary. That that is the primary consideration. And he says, then to a lesser extent, the nature of the accident. So he comes right out and says it. You got to look at the injury first, and then we're also informed by the surrounding events. Commissioner. Rakovich also votes to reverse, and he focuses largely on the surrounding events, and in his view, there were not enough surrounding events 
albeit there was a rock fall, but there was nothing else that Commissioner Rakovich saw that would necessitate an immediate call. He also uh, takes strong issue with with the the judge's reliance on the known unknowns of the injury. And he says, well, that cannot be the basis for a finding of an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. You have to base that determination on what you do know, on what the known facts are, not this on the set of unknown facts. So he takes the judge to task on that as a basis for finding an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death. So what we have here is really two different approaches, maybe three different approaches. One, Chair Jordan and Commissioner Baker are focused more significantly on the nature of the events. It's not to say they don't consider the injury, but they are, but the decision reads that they are much more concerned about the event, the rock fall that happened. Commissioner Rolfin, by contrast, focuses on the nature of the injury and says that the nature of the events must be considered, but secondarily. And then Commissioner Rakovich, in result, sides with Commissioner Alton, but he he seems to look more at the nature of the events as well, and also what is known versus what is unknown. So we're left with three different opinions, no clear result, and we should say this 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 case could go up to a circuit court of appeals. At this stage, we just don't know if it is or not. And in my view, it leaves a confusing regulation with just more confusion. That's my view of this decision. I, I don't fault the commissioners. I think they all worked in good faith to arrive at the decision that they did. But I think it's emblematic of the nature of this regulation. You had four, you know, knowledgeable commissioners, and this, and they came down very differently on what this confusing regulation means. And you know, that's probably not a surprise given the the law that we're dealing. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think one point that I did not mention. In the, in the judge's decision, I'd, I'd like to kind of throw this out there too, is we're focusing on, you know, obviously we've got, you know, Chair Jordan, Commissioner Baker, we're, we're, they're looking at, they really seemed to evaluate the totality of the circumstances. And there was testimony in front of the administrative law judge that, you know, the safety manager Obviously, he's getting reports that, you know, the miter, like I said, was was lucid, was discussing, as you pointed out, you know, turning down, sort of dictating, you know, his treatment. You know, I don't need the backboard. I'll just take an ice pack. You know, he ends up going to the hospital. And then the safety manager follows up with a mine manager, right, who goes with him to the hospital and says, you know, is he still, is he still okay? Yes, he's, he's still fine. And then asks. At that point, the medical professionals, do they think there's any reasonable potential to cause death? And the answer is no. But again, that's that's outside this 15-minute window. And, and sort of, you know, these these sort of, 
I don't know how you would explain it after, after the fact mm -hmm. information. And so I think it's important to highlight here with the commissioners really are focusing on this 15 minute window, right? And what did the operator know within that 15 minute window? And then we throw in the spicy sauce of, you know, erring on the side of reporting when you have these known unknowns, you know, the size of the rock, you know, how big was it actually that hit him? I think you framed it very well, Arthur, in your earlier comment of, you know, what is going to be the practical effect of this decision? Is, is this going to, you know, expand this concept of error on the side of reporting when you have these known unknowns? And, you know, when we kicked off the podcast, right, and you went on your explanation of your general dislike for this particular regulation, you know, I have to agree you know, and I don't, I don't know if our listeners, hopefully they haven't experienced one of these types of events before, but if you have 15 minutes is not a long time. It obviously something has happened. You're calling first responders, you're calling medical providers, medical treatment providers, whatever it is. And then somewhere within that 15 minutes, you're making this determination of reasonable potential to cause death. And then calling MSHA, the 800 number, right? All within 15 minutes. Yeah, so I just don't know how much this really helps. I think, as you, as you mentioned, the commissioners and the chair have, have really raised some good points here. But in doing so, I think the waters are now muddier than what they were, right? And so, yes, in terms of a positioning for a, a circuit court appeal, Maybe that would be beneficial in this case. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, you go to a circuit court, you never know what you're going to get because then you're involving three judges that don't know the mining industry. But that being said, I, I think any further direction or, or definition is would be welcome because here's the thing. The vast majority, if not all operators out there, they want to know what the rules are and they want to comply. I mean, that's what they want to do. That's the people I've worked with over my career. That's what they want to do. They don't, you know, they, you know, recognizing, as I mentioned earlier, it is an onerous burden if you have to make that call and you have to freeze the scene, you have to do the other things that are required under the regulations. But that being said, that's the law. And if that's what the law requires, then you got to do it. And, and just because we don't like the regulation, but you got to follow it. That's the law. But you got to know what the rules are. And and so I think anything we can get that would clarify this would be welcome. The other thing I'll say is, you know, like I mentioned before, somebody, if it's the responsible person or whoever it may be, is going to be tasked with making this decision. Is this immediately reportable or not? And I think that the best thing we can do for that person is you got to support that person as best we can. You got to train that person on all these different legal points that have come up in these cases because there is no definition in the law. We have to train them on what we expect as a company for them to make that decision. And then when they make their best decision that they can make in good faith, we have to support them. 
And if they decide that it was an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death, okay, that's their decision. They made the call. We have to follow through on what the law requires. They made the decision, no, it was not. And then MSHA ends up citing you. Then we need to defend our decision. And you know, one other thing is, if you if the decision is initially made that it's not an injury with a reasonable potential to cause death, and then further information comes to you, maybe the person takes a turn for the worse, or, or you, you learn of additional things, then in my view, that's when the 15 minutes starts based on that new information. So don't be afraid to make the call then if new information comes to light. So we're always learning new things. So, but I think it's really about supporting those site level personnel with as much training and information as we can give them because they have a tough job. And you bring up a good point there, Arthur. And, and I've been asked this in the past is, you know, at least according to, to some case law out there, right? And uh, an operator has a reasonable opportunity to investigate, mm-hmm. right? An accident, particularly in terms of, of reporting requirements. So when does that 15-minute clock really start ticking? And my take is it's when someone from management knows that there's been an accident. And so then we start evaluating at that point, trying to get details. Okay, what happened? What was the nature of the accident? What were the actual injuries? But it sounds like you're saying, right? So if we make one conclusion during that 15-minute period, and then we have further information that comes to light. Do we have an additional duty at that point to follow up in terms of reporting requirements? Well, I think you do. I think that that if you've made that, that you're making two different calls, right? right. The first call is based on the first set of facts that you have. Mm-hmm. And the second call is based on new information that you have. Now, I did not say that you have a, that, you get an extension on that first set of facts. That's not the case. If you've made the call that this is not an injury of the reasonable potential to cause death and no new facts come to light, stick with your call. You made the call based on what are, what you as a reasonable person determined based on that set of facts. But if a new set of facts comes to light or additional facts come to light that changes your view, then the 15 minutes would start from that point. Here's the thing. That... I think we all know that if MSHA questions you and, and cites you, they may go back to the first set of facts. Yeah. So you're going to have to be very clear with the basis for your decisions, both your initial decision and your subsequent decision, why your position changed. You're going to have to be able to, de- to defend that with facts and time frames. So that's a tough argument to make. Because I can envision that scenario getting clouded in box eight of a citation. But I think that is a defensible position. And operators that are making these calls in good faith with the facts before them should feel free to make one call, one determination. And then if the facts change... You can make a second determination based on the change in circumstances, but you're going to have to be able to clearly define how those circumstances change. No, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I just wanted that 
clarified for some of our listeners who I know who've probably experienced, right, that same type of scenario, right, where, you know, you learn one set of facts initially, and then there's obviously always developments, right, good or bad. And so, yeah, I think it's important for our listeners to be aware that these these decisions, you know, while the commission and the judge, you know, they're looking at this 15-minute period of time immediately following an accident in terms of immediate reporting requirements, you know, oftentimes these situations aren't static, right? They they change. There's developments, right? And so, yeah, you, you kind of have this ongoing duty, if you will, to communicate, you know, with everybody and figure out what, you know, what's going on in the nature of the accident and injury. You know? Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered this one, this current state of the law and this from every angle. So uh, <laughs> certainly this one, obviously, there's a lot to cover and there's a lot of opinions. I know I've shared mine, but I know the opinions are out there too. I've heard them. But that being said, if this case goes further or if there's additional cases that come down the road, certainly we will update our listeners with additional developments as they happen. So uh, certainly feel free to reach out with any questions on anything we've talked about and uh, be happy to kick it around with you some more. Absolutely. And with that, we will wrap it up. Thanks, Arthur. Great insight as always. And to our listeners, everybody stay safe out there. Have a great day. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. 